Hi, it's David Pollan, and this is the Hot Button number 74, Sundance, A Story of Love and Hate. My first Sundance was January 1991. I went to Park City without any idea of what I was getting into, except that cool stuff was happening at this festival. I got a room at the Yarrow, I called them from LA, gave them my credit card number over the phone, or maybe I didn't even have to. They're good old days. I don't think I bought any tickets until I was there. I wish I could say I was there for Sex, Lies, and Videotape in 1989. And I was actually convinced that I was there for a while. But now I'm pretty sure it was two years later, 91, in the wake of that film and Miracle Mile and Heathers. I remember seeing American Dream and Paris is Burning and Blood in the Face and Thank You and Good Night and Slacker and Straight Out of Brooklyn and Christo in Paris and Trust. I'm not even sure I got to the Eccles that year. I was mostly stuck in the Yarrow-adjacent and Doc Rich Holiday Village and the Egyptian on Main Street. Didn't have a car. I ate most of my meals on Main Street at the late great Texas Reds and the breakfast place in the top of the hill. I was 26. And seeing those films and those theaters bring clear memories to these, to this day. I still often talk about the audiences for Blood in the Face, some of whom were enraged that the doc that got access to neo-Nazis wasn't more objectively clear about Nazis being evil. Oi. 31 years later, well-intended people on both sides of the political spectrum are still making that kind of idiotic argument. The most memorable thing about the festival was buying a ticket to see Robert Altman live and in person and seeing him at a bar in the middle of Main Street, where I'd later watch the Super Bowl that same week, and where concerts still happen every year with about, and this Altman thing was about 50 other people, all of us, Altman included, on crappy folding chairs. The intimate access to a cinema master was shocking and wonderful. I went again on my own in 92 and 93 and 95 and 96. I think I got some newspapers to pay for my trip. In 97, I remember the awards event, which I think I hadn't been invited to before. Hurricane Streets won. In 1999, I started going for roughcut.com with an increasingly large crew. I think that was the first year where I saw every single film in competition. I took six years off in the festival from 2014 to 2019. My business, Movie City News, was spending a lot of money to take a crew of six to eight people up there every year for the previous decade, with at least three film critics and a camera crew each year. Frankly, I felt the festival wasn't taking reasonable care of me and my team. We weren't festival sponsors, but we had a big footprint, and we weren't. We were kind of being taken for granted. I was ushered back into the fold in 2020 by a new member of the Sundance team. Thankful for that. It was the in the intense heat of COVID. And I was happy to be able to rejoin the festival for the part that was really important to me, the movies. Roger Ebert, who was a loyal, loyal guy and whose loyalty extended to Cannes, then Toronto, then Sundance, used to say that the only problem with Sundance was that all the snow. Why should we slog around in all that weather? It made no sense to him. Of course, this is a guy from Chicago. But he did it. He did it in health and he did it in sickness. In 1999, there was a major turn at Sundance. Many Hindi, indie hits had come out of the festival in the decades since Sex Lies in 1989. Excuse me, 1989. Yes, 1989. But 1999 would be the Sundance of the Blair Witch Project and Happy Texas, two festival landmarks representing the best and worst case scenarios. Blair Witch, whatever you think of the film, was really unknown filmmakers doing a kind of film that had not been done much since the 60s, using then new equipment, using new publicity techniques for the festival itself. It was became a quick bidding war and hit a big hit, and everybody thought it was the trendsetter for the next period. Didn't turn out quite to be that. Happy Texas, on the other hand, was a nice little quirky comedy that got way overpaid for by the Weinsteins and became the code name for Sundance Hysteria and Price Bloat until Hamlet 2, a nice little quirky comedy with a big league 
comedy director and a cool young cast and everybody's hoped that Steve Coogan would be the next big thing in comedy beyond the UK. And that got even a bigger bonehead buy from Focus in 2008. There was a time when the marketing around Sundance seriously threatened the legitimacy of the festival. In the 1980s and 90s, Main Street was the same Main Street you would find if you were on vacation any time in Park City. But in later in the 90s, the swag houses started to build up. Most of them were in Deer Valley in the beginning, requiring an invitation and a car to get there. But increasingly, there were events where you would go to one location to get an invitation to go to another location to get an invitation to the other location. And the punchline was finding the place and fi- having a secret code to get past the gates. Alex Mamlet and Amir Barlev created a character named Kid Protocol at TIFF when TIFF did a series of shorts with attending filmmakers for their 25th anniversary. Four months later, in January 2001, RoughCut.com, my company, supported Kid Protocol 2, an eight-minute short on the party-crashing efforts at Sundance. Alex actually posted a combination of the two shorts on Vimeo. You can see it if you look on the actual website for this this this, uh, newsletter, or you can go on Vimeo. The intensity of the non-film scene at Sundance was so intense that we also had a full-time party reporter for that year's festival. She brought all the boys to the yard, which caused a great deal of consternation amongst my mostly female staff. But that's another newsletter. Just a few years later, Paris Hilton became the living symbol of everything that was wrong with Sundance. Half of the businesses on Main Street were taken over by sponsors, and it became hard to find lunch without being on somebody's list. Sundance, as an organization, did its darndest to shut down the hysteria. When the gifting suites were in houses in Deer Valley, that was one thing. But now they were eating Main Street alive, and that was another thing. The town wanted money from the marketers, though, and they were not giving up their space. So Sundance girded itself, refocused on what what its mission is, and like a Dr. Seuss book, something miraculous happened. Sundance bifurcated. The people who cared about the movies found their lane. The people who cared about the parties found their lane. And with the expansion to include worldwide cinema and competition, taking it from one dramatic and one doc section to two each, even the people who were there for the cinema bifurcated because with 40 competition slots, no one could cover them all, even if you ignore the other sections of the festival completely. The wider range of films somehow refocused the energy back towards the films themselves. There was still all the partying and hype, but the people who were there for that got that, and the people who were there for films, may who may have felt a little left out at times, from the partying, but they found something better to do with their week. The era of the streamer at Sundance has changed things in a certain way, but less really than you might expect. Just as in the real world, the streamers don't know the value of money. Last week's record, last year's record, $25 million buy of Coda, for instance, that figure makes a legacy window release of the film pretty much a guaranteed loser financially. But Apple had a different set of reasons for wanting Coda. It was a symbolic buy. It was a bow to the deaf community and Apple's support of said community. The reality for streamers in 2021 is that television programming costs them between $5 million and $15 million an hour these days. At Sundance, they get to see the finished movies, and the most expensive buy ever, Coda, is essentially $12.5 million an hour, which is on the high end of the spending, but in no means, by no means is it insane. Summer of Soul was another variation on the new models. The price was said to be over $12 million, setting a new record for docs. Couldn't have cost more than $3 million, probably a lot less, so the filmmaker producers were swimming in a success. The film was released day and date by two Disney divisions, Searchlight and Hulu, and it did $2.3 million in domestic theatrical. Not enough to pay for the cost, obviously. 
It brought Hulu eyeballs, though, and even more so prestige. And we're still looking at a best doc Oscar as a strong possibility sometime in the spring, whenever the hell Oscar finally is. I mean, is it before Easter or after Easter? Uh, who knows? But the obsession with dollar figures at Sundance has always been the lowest form of Sundance coverage. As a market, it is absolutely critical, but not because of the cash flow. It's the movies, stupid. 2021 was a little flat, but 2020, Minari, Palm Springs, The 40-Year-Old Version, and Zola have all had impact from that year's dramatic competition. Doc's Boy State, A Thousand Cuts, Crip Camp, Dick Johnson is Dead, The Fight, Time, and Welcome to Chechnya led a great group of films. Every year is a great group of films. So was 2021. But I'm just kind of giving you an idea of films that had an impact that you've probably heard of. Some of the films would have found an audience anyway. Some would not have. What people who don't cover or attend can are often misinformed about is the fact that the can market is really quite separate from the film festival and the films in competition. Yes, some of the competition films get bought out of can, though mostly for the United States, having financed themselves to completion with sales to other countries, sometimes including the United States. Most of what is at that market at can is about making deals for the next year or two of films and selling territories for existing or near existing films. The marriage of the highbrow and the lowbrow works extremely nicely for both sides. The marketing story, market story out of Sundance is of importance to the Sundance story. But the primary importance is that there's a parade of new films, mostly by new filmmakers, that have a platform to be seen by the industry and the media, and by extension, the world. While there's a level of convenience in watching Sundance on our TVs at home, that isn't really the best Sundance experience for writers who love movies, because our community is getting the opportunity to share it as well when we're there. I've seen the best of people and the worst of people in Park City. I've had movie moments that will never be quite the same elsewhere. I've had sexless intimacies with people who showed themselves or saw me in a way that no other circumstance demanded. We have all of the memories of these movies, seeing Napoleon Dynamite the first time, or the first screening of Blair Witch, or, or Born into Brothels, or that first screening of Precious, or the crew from Hump Day all on one couch in our rental house, or getting in a fist fight almost with the normally restrained James Rocky over Upstream Color, or unnamed movie star missing the bowl and peeing on our bathroom floor, or, or Zoo. Oh my God, Zoo. God, if you've seen Zoo, you remember Zoo. Or George Romero sitting with me and chatting or being within feet of the emotions of filmmakers and actors receiving the love and support of an audience for the first time so many times. And there's so much more. Everything that was and is so difficult about Sundance is part of what is great about Sundance. To overcome the hurdles and then to experience great work. It is all the greater. Maybe that's part of the Sundance brain damage that occurs when some movies get hyped to heaven. But I think that it's really more like the phenomenon of paying a ton for a Broadway show ticket and having a standing ovation for whatever it is because you paid so much to attend. Heck, maybe those two phenomena are similar. Maybe they're they're kind of the same thing in a way. But it's not just Sundance. In many ways, can is even worse. People hate or love. And given a short cooling off period, passions cool. But the thing at Sundance is to convert those passions into a deal ASAP, giving no one the chance to cool down. Until tomorrow.